God has just finished doing his initial kind of interview with Moses at the burning bush. And so we saw several weeks of explaining what God had been doing. God is teaching Moses. Uh, he's given him a lot of promises, but he's teaching him how to walk by faith. And that's, that's this line that we've seen that God is, is uh, given him information. He's given him promises. He even, he even gave him help where he didn't even need help, just overabundant help with his brother Aaron. And we're going we're gonna to talk about that a little bit later. But now, the, the burning bush, I don't know if it went out or disappeared or whatever, but we're, we move on to what ex- happened right after the burning bush. So let's see. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. So Moses leaves the burning bush, and he has a choice. He already expressed to God at one point, I just don't want to do this. Uh, I'm scared. I'm intimidated. I don't feel like I'm up to it. He said, but at the end, he was just like, I'm just unwilling. And God got pretty angry at that. God wasn't angry when he said I was weak. God wasn't angry when he said, I need more information or I need promises. God was only angry when he said, I am just flat unwilling. That's what got God angry. And when we, if you want more information on that, look at last week, but these really go together well. See, now Moses has the opportunity, since God has expressed to him, you need to do this, Moses, I'm calling you to do this. Moses has the opportunity to obey or not to obey or not. James chapter 1, verse 22, uh, there's a really famous verse that we all know. It says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That, that could be Moses right now. He's heard all this stuff from God. He's even talked to God about the plans and everything, but he could just go and, and forget about it. And many people, maybe even us, we've had burning bush times with the Lord where we've heard his voice. You've heard his call on your life. It's an, it was an experience maybe that was pretty intense maybe, or maybe it was more silent. It doesn't matter what it was like. But the next day or the next week, that experience fades away, and we have a simple choice each day. Are we going to obey what God told us Or are we going to shrink back in fear? Or are we going to just flat out disobey? You guys ever seen an Arabian horse? Yesterday was some horse race. I don't know. What was it? The Preakness or? No, it wasn't the Kentucky. That was a couple weeks ago. I don't know. Some famous horse race. I saw people dressed up in all their weird clothes and and these beautiful horses. Dan and I were having lunch at old Chicago, and, and it was up on the screen. And, and these horses are just like sleek and muscles and just like, they're the Arnold Schwarzenegger of horses, right? And, and they're just, it was, they're so beautiful. With the, the, you know, the most beautiful horses are these Arabian horses from the Middle East. But these Arabian horses are, are um, really kind of crazy when they're born. They have intense drive and intense, they have to be disciplined, right? They have to be um, broken, as you would call it, right? Well, um, the trainers who are in charge of training traditionally these, uh, these uh, horses require absolute obedience. 
absolute obedience from their horses. And the test that they uh, test them with to see if they're completely trained is really amazing. The final test, after they go through months and maybe even years of training, this final test is beyond the endurance of almost any living thing. The trainers force the horses to go without water for many days. And then he, uh, he brings them to the corral, and there's water across the way there, and he turns them loose. And of course, the horse starts running towards the water. But just at the edge, right before they reach it, ready to plunge in and drink, the trainer blows his whistle. And the horses who have been completely trained and who have learned perfect obedience stop right there. They turn around and come pacing back to their trainer. And they stand there, quivering, wanting water, but they wait in perfect obedience. And when the trainer is sure that their obedience is is complete, he gives them the signal to go back and drink. And we might think this is kind of severe, but when you are riding in the trackless deserts of the Arabian Peninsula, you want to be sure that your life is entrusted to a horse who is obedient. And God is training us. He's entrusting us with ministry and with family and with children and with people. He's, he's, he's calling us to these different ministries and he will train us to obey him. Moses is going through that right now. And it looks good because he goes and he says, immediately the first thing he says to his father-in-law Jethro is, I need to go, Okay. So here Moses, he's beginning to walk down this road of obedience. It's going to be long and it's going to be difficult, but it looks like he's committed now. So what happens? Moses talks to Jethro. And remember, Jethro is his father-in-law, but Jethro is also his boss and his landlord. (laughs) Pretty much everything that he's in charge of, uh, Jethro is, is, is his boss in that. And so Moses asks his permission. Now, did Moses need his permission? What do you think? Eh, yes, no, maybe, I don't know. But he goes and gets it. You know, maybe Moses could have just left without saying anything. I'm on my way to obey God. Okay, great, Moses. I like your passion. I like your energy and and wanting to obey right away. But look, he he is, um, that's actually not the right way of doing things. Moses is a gentleman on top of being obedient. So he honors his commitments. Now, what was Moses in charge of? Do you remember? The sheep, right? He was the shepherd for all of Jethro's flocks. And it wouldn't be right for him to just leave these sheep uncared for. And what we're seeing here is Moses already has a good shepherd's heart. Sometimes like, oh, I'm ready to follow the Lord. Leave my sheep behind and the sheep are getting eaten by the bears behind you. And it wasn't their fault. But no, Moses, he cares for the sheep. And so he takes, he makes sure that they're taken care of. He makes sure Jethro knows and he, Jethro has given him permission, okay? So that's good to know. A good shepherd's heart is that you care about the sheep more than you even care about what's going on in your life. Sometimes our life gets crazy, Right? Sometimes we have a lot going on. Sometimes it's of the Lord. Sometimes it's consequences from our own behavior. So we have a lot of stuff going on 
from a lot of different sources. But what God wants to develop in, uh, in us is this heart that cares for people, no matter what's going on in my life. He cares about people. He probably loved Jethro. And he certainly loved his family. Well, we're going to see some more of this going on. So let's, let's continue. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go, return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. So here, God gives Moses an encouragement. Okay, God doesn't just demand obedience and then stands up there and just says, let's see what happens, Gabriel. Let's see, watch. Oh, he tripped and fell. (laughs) That's not God, okay? God is compassionate and God knows what we need and sometimes God will just encourage you out of nowhere. Here, God encourages Moses as only he can. He speaks directly to what Moses fears. He speaks directly to what Moses fears. And God knows what you fear too. And he also knows that there's no reason to be afraid. Are we allowed to be afraid? There's there's times and situations where fear is an appropriate response. But to live in a place of fear is not acceptable in the Lord. He knows our fears and he will eliminate the need for those fears. So he, in this situation, he literally let those people die. He killed people to make sure Moses wasn't afraid. That's how much he cares about Moses' fear and Moses' life. You're my child, Moses. I will stop at nothing to, to, um, to not encourage you, to help you. I will be there for you. God knows there's nothing to actually be afraid of. We are to fear, told to fear not hundreds of times in the Bible, aren't we? God has been very clear on this issue. If you have fear, it is something we need to deal with with the Lord. We need to confess it to the Lord. And we need to look for how he is going to answer that prayer. Because he will. He's not just saying, now stop fearing, buck up and do it yourself. He's not saying that. He's saying, look to me and what I'm doing. And you will see that I am eliminating your need to fear. You don't need to fear. You can trust me. And even if you can't see it, you can still trust my voice, my word that tells you, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of the issue. Because God is so kind and he's patient with all of our issues. He's so kind and patient. He addresses our fears in love with grace and truth. He gives grace. He supplies what we need when we're afraid. Moses here needed encouragement. Moses needed some information. God graciously supplies that. But God also supplies the truth. Moses, don't be afraid. You can't just stay in that place. You've got to look to me, and I will help you in that. Just like in John chapter 1, we see Jesus, we see this principle alive in Jesus' life as well. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the word, who is who? Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of, anyone know? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Jesus is full of both of them. And you go down to verse 16. If you see it, it says, and of his fullness, what is he full of? Grace and truth. Of his fullness, we have all received and grace for grace. That's what it says in John. So Jesus is full of grace, equipping power, forgiving power, all this 
wonderful blessings for us, and he's full of truth, and we receive all this, and it's called grace. God reveals our sins and weakness. That's what his truth does. Hey, don't be afraid. There's no reason for you to be afraid. That's the truth. No reason to be afraid. But he doesn't just leave it there and say, don't be afraid. And just, and just look at us till we stop being afraid. That's not how it works. He's full of grace and truth. So yes, truth. He'll, he'll tell you you're a dirty, rotten sinner. And then he'll say, here's my power to change. Here's my spirit to equip you. So God reveals our sin, and then he washes our sin away, washes our guilt away by his grace, and then he transforms us by his grace. See, his grace is a two-step process, you could say. And that's why he says, and grace for grace. It's a weird way in our language of saying it, but what he's saying is it's from grace to grace, or it's grace upon grace. The first grace is forgiveness. Now, if I were to say forgiveness, oh, that's so wonderful. My sin was washed away. My burden of guilt got lifted off my shoulders. I thought I was, came alive. It was the best day of my life when I was forgiven of all my sins. That was a great day, amen? Could there be anything better? Yes, there is actually a lot better In the Bible, that's definitely talked about, and it's glorified. It's called our justification. It's the first step. It's that very... So if I were to put forgiveness or justification, that here in this hand, and I were to put grace over here in this hand, which would we say is better? Grace is by far better. Because this part, the forgiveness, is just a taste of the fullness of grace. Well, what else is there in grace? We, could, we almost have a hard time imagining how could it get any better than being forgiven of my sins? And God's like, read 2 Corinthians. Read Galatians. It is so much better because God actually equips you to live a godly, Christ-honoring life by his grace. And that's the fuller part of grace. And that's why he says, grace for grace. You go from one little part of grace to the fuller part of grace, and that's how life goes. You just go grace to grace. It never goes back grace to trying really hard. It never happens that way. It goes grace, and then you more grace, and then more grace. When Moses needed encouragement, God gave him encouragement. We're going to find that when Moses needs anything, God is willing to give it to him. And I pray that we live our lives the same way, that we really, truly trust in the Lord alone. I am not going to trust in my education. I am not going to trust in my job. I will trust in Jesus Christ alone. It really will insulate you from so many things. Your boss comes in and says, you're fired. You're like, okay. Jesus will take care of me. See ya. Love you guys. Peace out. The doctor comes in and says, you're dying. Okay, I'm not upset with you. I'm not upset, period. If Jesus wants to heal me, I'm going to ask him, and he'll heal me. I'm going to call upon the Lord with confidence. That's how to live by faith. But this world tells you, you're crazy to live like that. All right, I'm crazy then. All right, then Moses, look, at, look what it says here. Moses took his wife and his sons, set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. So Moses brings his family along in the call that God has given him. And that's a good idea, Moses. Uh, Don't leave them behind. And this is great because this actually introduces the theme of our section now. 
which is that you have to take care of your spiritual responsibilities at home before your ministry can truly be blessed by God. You have to take care of your spiritual responsibilities at home before your ministry can be blessed. Now what does it say? And Moses took the rod of God in his hands. Well, you guys might remember, two weeks ago, we studied the rod of God. And what did the rod teach us about? Grace. It taught us about Jesus and the gospel, but it was a real symbol of God's grace. And here we have another reminder. When you have a rod in your hand, it was a staff that you would walk around with and lean on. And so this is a picture of leaning on the grace of God. And here we see kind of Moses is saying, all right, I'm going to do this, God. I'm going to bring my family on this trip, this crazy trip you're calling me to do, and I'm going to trust in your grace. Moses is doing it. Moses is deciding to obey. This is a great example and, and, uh, for us so that we can do the same thing. Don't just say, all right, God, I'm going to do everything you want me to do today. Watch me. He doesn't say do that. He says, my grace, it has to be centered on my grace. You have to constantly be centered on my grace. So if God says, today you're going to go witness to someone, you can't say, okay, I'm going to go do it. And you just do it. No, you have to come with humility and faith and say, Lord, I've heard your word, I've heard your command, but I need you to equip me. I need you to supply what I need. God's called a lot of you to do a lot of things every day. A lot of you are married. A lot of you are going to be married, and that's a big calling to love and serve that person sacrificially. You can't do it if you don't ask God for the grace. If you don't have the staff in your hand, you can't succeed in those things. What happens when we throw the staff off and we say, I can do it in my own strength, Who are we depending on? Self. And that never succeeds to accomplish spiritual things. Your marriage is supposed to be spiritually fruitful. And it can't be when we're pouring flesh into it. Does that make sense? It has to be spirit. has to be trusting in the Lord. Waiting upon him. Then stepping forward. After you've asked him, don't just be like, shut up, honey, I'm praying. That's not it. No, you come to the Lord first. Simply ask him. It doesn't, it's not ours. You come to the Lord and you say, Lord, I can't do this in my own power. I need you. You call upon him. You say, I believe you'll supply all I need to love my wife the way I need to today, to love my husband. And then you get up and you love them and you serve them. You make those choices, and you will be able, equipped, enabled to do those things because you called upon the Lord in faith. And every time we fail, it's because it was us. It's not because God didn't enable us. It was us. We trusted in ourselves. We depended on ourselves. We somehow disobeyed God's word. We said, okay, I'm going to step forward to love my wife. Smack. That's not obeying God's word. I don't care if you prayed. You literally didn't want, like, have the right thing you were doing. You disobeyed God's word. Well, we're going to see this rod. Moses takes it. He's equipped. He's, he's saying, I'm going to do this, all right? Now, we're getting to a strange section, all right? So check this out. And the Lord said to Moses, when you get back to Egypt, see that you do all the wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. Before we get to the strange part, we have this verse. Uh, God tells Moses, Moses, don't deviate from this plan. 
I see that you're living by grace. I see that you want to hold this staff in your hand. I see it. It's great, Moses. Don't change. Don't change. Don't deviate from the plan. I've given you specific instructions. Follow them. Don't think when you get down there and you see the situation that you have a better idea because that's what we do. Oh, I thought marriage was going to look like this, and now it looks like this, so I'm throwing out everything I knew about following God, and I'm going to just start doing what I want to do in this situation. Well, that's a bummer because God had equipped you, and we're throwing that away and saying, well, I need to try harder. I need to do something to fix this situation. That is why we read and study the Bible before hard times come. I talk a lot about marriage because a lot of hard times happen in marriage, but there's a lot of hard times in other things too. School, work, a lot, a lot of places we get hard, difficult trials in our lives, right? Well, we have to read the Bible before that because people usually don't do well when they have no plan. Our flesh doesn't respond well when we're put on the spot and under intense, immense pressure. It doesn't work very well. So we have to read the word beforehand and trust that that word is going to get us through the hard times. We encourage couples who are getting married to do premarital because marriage is hard. Amen? Amen. This parenting class that we're going to do, parenting is literally the hardest thing I've ever had to try to do in my entire life. And I have six boys, and I have failed like 98% of the time. <laughs> but 2%, the Lord has been faithful, and we're good to go. They're, they're great kids, but man, are they selfish and self-willed and just little sinners, aren't they? You guys have kids? Amen? I'm not crazy here. Where did we learn how to parent from? It is so important for us to actually teach people how to be parents. Look at what the Word of God says to, so that we can follow His plan. But a lot of people have no idea, and they have all these kids, and they start having kids, and they've never gone to a parenting class. And they've never learned. And that's why we've got to get the Word out. We've got to get people here so that they can hear and learn how to do, be successful in what God has called them to do. All right. Well, look what God says here. But I will harden his heart. Who's he talking about? Pharaoh. So that he will not let the people go. And we, we talked about this. Why would God put such a stubborn, old, fogey, mean guy in the place of leadership in Egypt? Why did God raise up Pharaoh? Well, it was on purpose. Because if he was just a, a weak guy that just let the Israelites go, oh, you just guys just go have fun, then God wouldn't have been able to show his wonders to show his miracles. And all the world now knows how wonderful God is, as we're going to see. It's for his reputation. It's, it's what he wanted to do. So this, God is going to harden his heart, which means he's going to make him even more stubborn than he already is. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel, uh, the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son. Your firstborn. So that's a big thing. God is giving Moses a full preview of coming attractions. God wants Moses to know how hard the heart of Pharaoh is. 
His heart is so hard that he would rather stay stubbornly rebellious than save the life of his own firstborn son. God is clear from the very beginning, if you rebel, your son will die. God doesn't surprise him. God's not a meanie up here. Oh, 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 I tricked you. Nope. God gave him clear warning. Some say God is such a jerk here. Why would he kill his son? How can you serve a God that would kill someone's son? I would ask, well, what are the first nine plagues for? What were the first nine plagues for? That doesn't happen until the tenth plague, right? The first nine. I think they show God's mercy and patience. Frogs and the flies and all these disgusting things. But he showed the whole world through this, what we're going to study, that he's gracious and merciful. But a hard heart, this is also the lesson, a hard heart will be judged and destroyed. God knew uh, Pharaoh would never repent. So he raised him up so that the whole world could see how God works. He warns you, he's patient, he's patient, he's patient. But if you are going to rebel, your blood is on your own hands. Your kid's blood is on your own hands. We got the city out here and we got kids suffering and And why are they suffering? A lot of times, it's because their parents are selfish, self-absorbed people who never raised their kids, never loved their kids. And then they complain, why is my kid a crazy person? Why do you think? It's sad. It's really sad when people have a stubborn, rebellious heart. God warns them, and he warns them, but he's still loving and still wants to give them a chance. Let's see what happens here. And it came to pass on the way as he's going to Egypt, okay, at the encampment, so they're camping for the night, the Lord met him and sought to kill him. What? That is weird. Then Zipporah, this is Moses' wife, took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet, saying, surely you are a husband of blood to me. Or if you have the King James, I like their translation. Sure, you're a bloody husband to me. It's funny. So he let him go. And then she said, you are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. Okay, so what is going on here? It seems like this is just out of left field. We're going, we're tracking. Moses is doing great. What is going on? And all of a sudden, God's like, I'm going to kill you. What? Okay, so when something doesn't make sense, it, we're probably not looking at it the right way. Because this actually is, it makes a lot of sense when we learn about it. Okay, 400 years before this, God met Abraham. God said, Abraham, want to be my partner? Abraham said, sure, I believe in you. God said, great, we're going to change the world. I'm going to bring my son, my Messiah, through you and your kids. And I'm going to make you a great nation. And all you have to do is team up with me. Say that you'll be with me. Okay? This is the covenant that God made. And in that covenant, God told Abraham, this is your part. Circumcise your boys on their eighth day of life forever. Well, is that a work? Well, not really for the kid. The kid's just there. All right? It's a sign that you're agreeing to partner with God in this covenant. So God knows that they're going to be goofballs. God knows that they're selfish. God knows that they're even going to fall into idolatry. And God knows they're going to fail a ton. 
But he says, guys, circumcise and partner with me. Tell your kids we're different than all the people around us. We're going to follow the Lord. So it showed you were on God's team. It's a lot like baptism is today. You guys, do you guys know that? Baptism is a work. Baptism doesn't save you. But baptism is really important for saying, this is what I believe. I want everyone to know, my family, my friends, my enemies, I want everyone to know I've chosen to follow Jesus. That's what baptism is. I've been baptized. Well, here Moses has not circumcised his son. And we don't know how old his son is, but his son is obviously much older than he was supposed to than the eighth day of his life. So Moses was slacking in his spiritual responsibilities. He hadn't been leading his family in the Lord. And Moses wasn't even really that concerned about it. He was just going on his way, going on his path. But God is concerned about it. See, God loves the weak. God loves the needy. And this ki- these kids, and Moses' kids, and Moses' wife, if he's going if, if to be used by God in big ways, Moses, he can't be compromising with these young ones around him, with the weaker ones, with the ones who have to follow him. Moses, it said he put his kids on a donkey and said, you're coming with me, all right? So he's leading the way just fine. But in that leading, was he serving them first? And the answer is no. And husbands, this is one of the most brutal messages to you as leaders of your family and as leaders in ministry, all of us together. We have to lead our families with servant love, like Jesus. We cannot get distracted by the greatness of your calling. And some of us have great callings, but it cannot ever be our number one priority. Our families must be that, one, that number one priority. So this can, be, this can cause great pain in marriages and in families. Why, are PK, why is PK even a thing? Because a lot of pastor kids or PKs are horrible kids. <laughs> And you wonder, why are they such horrible kids? And you talk to a lot of them, and what they'll tell you is, my dad was never around. Or my dad is a different person at home than he is at church. And that is not leading our family the way that it's supposed to be. Okay? And in marriages, wives can get really, really hurt because of this as well. His wife is not a happy camper right now. She seems very angry and very bitter, doesn't she? And that can happen when a wife feels neglected and ignored. And what happens is wives can easily respond in the flesh and let that anger come out and let that being ignored turn into bitterness. And it doesn't make it right, it doesn't make that response right, but it is certainly real, those feelings, right? And as a husband... We have to take responsibility for leading our family. Maybe God knew that this was the only way to get through to Moses was to embarrass him in front of his wife and his family. I don't really know why God did it the way that he did right here. 
Maybe his wife wasn't down with the whole teaming up with God thing. Maybe she didn't want her kid to be circumcised. Maybe she thought it was weird. And, and she, remember, she was kind of from an outlying part of the family. So it wasn't, you know, she wasn't part of the uh, Jewish people right there in Egypt. So maybe she had reservations about this. I don't know. I'm not sure. But I know that it shouldn't have come down to this. That's the problem here. And here's the lesson we have. Just obey the Lord. Disobedience leads to so many awful situations. And so many times I feel like saying, if you would have just obeyed the Lord, this would never have been a problem. Okay? It just, just obey the Lord. God can and he does heal uh, these awful situations as we choose to live by faith, but there can be some brutal consequences. Some of us in, li- in here are living with brutal consequences for our choices, huh? And it hurts, and we wake up every morning, and the, the pain is still there. And we think, oh, if I would have just obeyed the Lord, and the Lord is like, yes, yes. So next time, obey me fully. A lot of times we say, oh, but it hurts so bad. I don't want to obey God. And it's easier to shut down than to obey him fully. No, he's calling us to obey more. Fully trust in him. All right. And the Lord God said to Aaron, go into the wilderness and meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. And then he did the signs in the sight of the people. So the, so the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and he had looked upon their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. Think about it. This is the first time in hundreds of years that these people have heard directly from God. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that a big deal? And the message they hear is about their deliverance and their salvation or their redemption because that's what the whole book of Exodus is about, is redemption. That's the message they hear. Can you imagine the joy and the relief that the people are feeling as they see the wonders and hear the loving message of God? It's a big deal. You see, the redemption of God is really the only place where joy can be found. And right now these guys are just, man, this is great. Moses is coming and he can do magic tricks and it's gonna, God's going to save us. And they're so excited because... The, the message of God's love and God's salvation is where all joy comes from. Joy does not come in unbelief. Voltaire, you know who Voltaire is? All right, I didn't, so I had to look it up. But he was an infidel of the most pronounced type, and he wrote, I wish I had never been born. Okay, the end of his life, he did whatever he wanted, he just did not like religion or God at all, just disobeyed all the time. And what did he say? I wish I had never been born. I am not happy. That's what that, I'll translate for you. I'm sad. Real joy is not found in unbelieving. Real joy is also not found in pleasure. Lord Byron, 
was a guy I had to look up to. He lived a life of pleasure more than anyone did, but he wrote, The worm, the canker, and grief are mine alone. That was his semi-last words. Not happy. I'll translate for you again. Third, real joy is not found in money. Jay Gould was a, a, a millionaire here in America, and he had plenty of money. But when he died, he said, I suppose I'm the most miserable man in the whole world. That was his own words. How about position and fame? Nope, joy is not found there. Lord Baconsfield, who you'd think would be happy because his name's Bacon, enjoyed more than his share of fa fame and uh, position, but he wrote, youth is a mistake, manhood is a struggle, and old age is regret. I'm sad. Well, what about military glory? Alexander the Great conquered the whole world, and after he was done, he cried. And he said in his tears, in his tent, wallowing in his own tears, he said, there's no more worlds for me to conquer. <laughs> I'm sad. Where is real joy found? Only in hearing the words of the Lord. Believing him. Only in hearing about his loving rescue of us. Sometimes you meet someone who is just so happy. Have you guys met someone like that? Who they, I mean, it's like nothing will rock them. They are just full of joy. And no matter what you say to them, they say, ah, but the Lord has told me that he loves me. And that is where I want all of us to go to. That's how I want us. What are old people usually like? What, wrinkly? Be careful. Be careful. Oh, <laughs> old people are generally mean crabbies, just mean people. As, as you walk, as I've walked around to this neighborhood a lot, and I've gone door to door, and I've knocked on the door, and when it's an old person, 90% of the time, they're like, what do you want, whippersnapper? They're just angry. I'm like, I just want to tell you about Jesus. I hate religion and I hate you and I love Buddha. Isn't that a religion? Well, I don't... Well, no. I'm telling you, it's just my experience. Now, I know there's plenty of nice, loving people. But as we grow older, we get more set in our ways, more set in our anger and bitterness if we don't have Christ, more set in love and graciousness if we do. I want us to be old people that love Christ and that are an example to all the young people in the church of how to rejoice in him. Because as we grow older, our jobs matter less and less, our trials matter less and less, and our joy in the Lord grows and grows and grows. That's how it is. Jesus hears our cries. Jesus comes down to save us. He washes us clean. He removes the terrible burden of guilt and shame that we carried on our shoulders. Then he begins the process of transforming us, the grace upon grace, right? The second grace, the transforming us as into his very image as we read the word and just believe it. It's amazing. He allows us then even to serve him. And then he rewards us after our life of serving him in heaven with amazing rewards. So I'm going to close our talk today with one question. If Jesus is the only source of real joy and true joy, 
Why do we invest so much time in other things that we believe will make us happy? Philippians 3.8, Paul says, Yet indeed I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul says, I want to think of nothing else except Jesus my whole life. Some people will then say, well, your life is a... You're so heavenly-minded, you're of no earthly good. Every time I call you, you say, oh, I'm praying. Hang on one second. I'll... Every time I see you, you're at church. You're there every Sunday. How are you ever going to reach this world if you're at church all the time? It's not my job. Jesus will reach the world through me if I abide in him. We had one of these quotes going up here that says, the, the church is always looking for better programs. And God is looking for better men. Ones who love him, rejoice in him alone, trust in him alone. We don't have to figure out a way to, 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 to save this city. We're going to do prayer, like our prayer night, the Wake Up Denver thing. We're going to pray. We were doing our food bank on Wednesday. A guy came up to me and he's like, what are you doing to, to, to do this? And what are your plans? And I, and I told him, I have absolutely no plans at all. I just pray. And he's like, Religion doesn't work for me. And I said, I'm sorry. Jesus works for me. Everything you see here is because of Jesus. And he couldn't get it. But I pray it's a light to him. Because can't, we can't fall back into, what are we going to do? Because then, then we stop praying. And then we stop reading. And then we stop seeking him. Paul says, I count all things lost for the excellency of knowing Jesus, just experiencing him, knowing him by experience, knowing how he thinks, how he feels. Everything in my life is about Jesus, he says. Hebrews chapter 1 and 12, verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Trying super, 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 super hard. Oh, that's actually not what it said. Having lots of meetings. Coming up with great ideas. Nope. Organizing lots of stuff. Nope. It says what? Looking unto Jesus. That is how you run the race. Looking unto Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith. That's how we do it. That's the only way we can do it. That's all he's given us. Look unto me. Ask, that's what grace is. Call upon me and I will supply you. I will give you. Look unto me. Well, why would Jesus do such a thing? Well, Hebrew says right here, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What does all that mean? It means Jesus rejoices in you, he loves you, and that's why he wants it to be this way. He never told us we need to figure out our own way to do church. He said, just look unto me. Look unto me. Depend on me. I will use you. You will be a light to the world if you just trust me. 
And why would Jesus do it this way? Because he loves us so much and he gets joy in giving us what we need. Do you guys ever give someone a present and they were just like, meh? Isn't that the worst feeling like in the world? Where you, you like, you gave of your resources and you supplied them and they're just like, oh, great. And they just didn't, you know, they weren't happy. Are we doing that in our life? Where Jesus says, I'm going to give you, that means it's a gift, grace upon grace. I will give you forgiveness and then I will equip you. How many of us are saying, I don't really need that right now, God. I need to figure this out. How am I going to convince these people to come to church? How am I going to convince? How am I going to make my children obey? How am I going to fix my weird parents? We have all these things we worry about when Jesus is just like, really? I was going to give it to you. I, I want to give it to you. I get joy from giving it to you. That literally is the thing that makes me the happiest, Hebrews just says. For the joy that's set before him, he went to the cross, he endured the cross because he knew he would eventually reign and send us resources from the right hand of heaven. That's why he's up in heaven, so he can supply us what we need, heavenly resources for our earthly lives and ministry and service. That's how we live. Jesus loves it that way. He never wants us to go back to doing it on our own. Why do people burn out in ministry, in marriage, in parenting? Why do they burn out? Because they're feeding the wrong resources into their engine. Into the, like, I picture the, the Titanic where they're feeding stuff into the boiler. That's what I'm trying to say. The steam engine, whatever. You get it. Jesus loves to serve you and supply grace to you. God actually likes you and loves you and he's so happy to just be with you and to be your constant supplier. God is not disinterested in you. He only has your best interests in mind. So we started today by saying obedience is really important. Moses, good job being obedient. And then, God, and then he's leaning on that staff, which is good. But then he, he has a, a midway course correction that needs to happen with his family. And God brings it back at the end by saying, you have to keep trusting in me. I love you. I love the people. I'm here to serve you. God wants to serve us. Why do we get up and do our devotions in the morning? Why do we spend time with the Lord? It is not that you're trying to earn something from him. It is not that it's a duty that you have to do. It is not anything that you are trying to get done. It is giving him the time to serve you. When you read the Bible, God is serving you. Peter said, you're not going to wash me, my feet, Jesus. And Jesus is like, Peter, if I don't serve you, if I don't wash you, you'll have no part of me. My work, my kingdom, all the stuff I'm doing spiritually in this city, you can't be a part of if you don't let me serve you. Peter's like, well then, wash my whole body. And he's like, Peter, you don't need that either. Just spend time with me daily. Just let me wash your feet. And you'll see it works that way. Amen, guys? All right, we are done.
Let us stand. We have communion available today. So what we do at the end of our service is we, uh, we give you an opportunity to engage with God and, and uh, take communion. Communion is where we rem- remember that it's all about Jesus. It's not about us. So we, we eat the bread. We remember what Jesus did. You guys can go ahead and stand with me. You can... Uh, we remember what Jesus did as he died upon the cross and his body was broken for us. That was a big part of why he can give us grace upon grace. It's because of that loving action and sacrifice that he made. And then we have the, the cup and the, the juice and that symbolizes his new life. When he rose from the dead, his blood poured out for us in sacrifice and then a new life, a new wine, a new spirit given to us after death when we're made alive again by him. And so we just give him the attention as we uh, wrap it up today. We allow him to, maybe, maybe you're realizing that your, uh, your family is in need of some attention, some spiritual attention, and maybe it's been uh, a long time since you've just prayed with them or, or lovingly served them. Uh, this is a time to just confess that to the Lord and to get right with him. Receive his healing because he is very willing to heal us all, to forgive us all, and to make us right again. Amen? Amen. Jesus, we love you, and we just thank you, that Lord, when we uh, are thirsty, when we are empty, and when we're broken, you hear our cry, just like you heard it for the people of Israel, and you come to our rescue. And Lord, we call and we ask you to rescue us now. In Jesus' name we pray.